today we're going to take a quick break from our jog through. We're going to review some of the people we've met since our last review as we continue in the Bible story. Thanks for tuning in to the Bible Brief. We wanted to start off this episode giving you all an update on the podcast. You are all so kind to us in recommending the show, and we've seen some amazing growth in the last few weeks in our metrics. We have nearly three times the number of subscribers now than we had a month ago, and we're continuing to see the numbers grow week by week. We've set out to help others learn the life-changing story and message of the Bible, and we want to thank you for partnering with us as you recommend the show to others. Okay, we've said a lot of names so far in the podcast, and in the Bible it's easy to get lost in the sea of names as you read. That's why today we're going to do a review of the names that you've learned since our last people review. This episode should be paired with our episode 43, so if you want to re-review some of the people from last time, simply go back and listen to that episode, which is the people review. Again, that's episode 43. We'll mention some of those folks here, but we're not going to repeat an in-depth review of the names from that episode. Okay, with all that said, let's get started. As the people entered the promised land of Canaan, and the leadership of Joshua came to an end with his death, we met the judges. And remember the judges were the dispute managers and military leaders that God raised up to help Israel defeat their enemies. This was in the midst of a cycle where first, the people turned from God and worshipped other gods. God gave them over to their enemies, and then the people cried out to God for salvation. After that, God would raise up a judge to save the people. The judge would rule until the judge died, and then the people would turn away from God again. This cycle is the unifying characteristic of the era of the judges. And in the book of Judges, we see story after story of this cycle, as the people continue to rebel against God, despite his many acts of deliverance. During this era, we met one of the judges, and his name was Gideon. You'll remember Gideon as the judge who led the 300 men against the Midianite army of 135,000. This victory for Israel is one of the examples of God's deliverance that we honed in on during this era. We learned that when God is involved, numbers don't matter. Only God's power does. As the era of the judges wound to a close, we found the people increasingly discontent with the leaders that God had given them. Instead, they wanted to be like other nations. They wanted a king to be placed over them. And it's here that we met the prophet Samuel. When the people of Israel rejected God as king over them, God sent Samuel to warn them about the ramifications of having a human king over them. These warnings included taxation, conscription, among other things. But the people wanted a king, despite the consequences. And so God has Samuel anoint Saul as the first king of Israel by pouring oil on his head, a symbolic act representing his commissioning to a new office, the office of king. Soon after Saul becomes king, however— he offers a sacrifice that was not permitted in the law that God had given the nation. As a result of this disobedience, God says through the prophet Samuel that the kingdom is being taken away from Saul and being given to another. And we quickly met the next king. His name was King David, also anointed by the prophet Samuel to this kingly office. David is perhaps the greatest human king in the history of Israel so far. God used David to accomplish great victories for the Israelites as they continued the campaign to drive out the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. And David became famous for his military might and trust in the Lord for victory. After many such victories, and upon the completion of building his own palace in Jerusalem, 
we see David's desire to build the Lord a permanent temple. This would be in the place of the tabernacle that had been in use since the wilderness with Moses. And while God rejects having David build the temple, he responds with some of the great promises of the Bible. These are called the Davidic covenant, the promises of a throne, a dynasty, and an everlasting kingdom through one of David's seed. These promises heighten the expectation of the seed of Eve who will defeat evil, the seed of Abraham who will bless all the nations of the earth, and now the righteous seed of David who will rule on David's throne over an everlasting kingdom. Yet this great King David, to whom God made amazing promises, expresses his corrupt nature as well. He may have been a great king, but he was far from perfect. In just a few pages, we learned about his coveting of another man's wife, adultery with her, and then the murder of her husband. David's great rule was marred by this awful, sinful scandal, and the rest of his reign would be plagued with internal conflict and rebellion among his household. David's reign was followed by his son, King Solomon, the one who builds God's temple in Jerusalem. And you may remember that Solomon was known primarily for his wisdom as he ruled over the kingdom of Israel. He increased the prosperity of the nation and eventually became internationally famous for his wisdom. This prosperity was exemplified in the beautiful temple that he built for God. Beautifully and artistically made of cedar and gold, the symbolic reminder of the Garden of Eden. And yet, with apparently similar temptation towards women as his father David, he disobeyed God's law regarding wives from other nations. Solomon ended up with a lot of wives, many of whom were for purposes of political alliances with other nations. In fact, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. One wonders how he even remembered all their names. Anyway, this sin of Solomon had severe consequences. God announced that he was going to split the nation in two in the next generation, with ten tribes to the north and two tribes to the south. And now before we get into that, let's briefly say the names of the first three kings of Israel together. They were Saul, David, and Solomon. Again, Saul, David, and Solomon. Those are some names that you should hold in your mind for the rest of your days. Okay, on to the next generation. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, becomes the next ruler. And just as soon as he leads the nation, he makes a very unwise decision to increase the labor of the tribes who'd labored for years under his father Solomon. This decision precipitates a split in the kingdom, where ten tribes rebel with their own king named Jeroboam. Yes, the ruler's names rhyme, Rehoboam of the south and Jeroboam to the north. In this first generation, the southern kingdom of two tribes is ruled by Rehoboam, while the northern ten tribes are ruled by Jeroboam. If you can remember Aboam, then just remember that the rightful king starts with an R, Rehoboam, whereas Jeroboam is the rebellious king. And remember, he was very rebellious. In an echo of Aaron way back at Mount Sinai, Jeroboam sets up two golden calves in the northern kingdom of Israel and causes the people to begin speeding towards judgment by God. After this, as we focused on the northern kingdom, we were introduced to three people you should know at this point, Ahab, Elijah, and Elisha. Ahab was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, generations after Jeroboam, and he was even more wicked than Jeroboam. He did, quote, more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger 
than all the kings of Israel who were before him. It's in the midst of his reign that we were introduced to Elijah, who has a miraculous ministry that includes the first recorded resurrection in the Bible when he raises a widow's son. You'll remember that Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal who had been sponsored by Ahab. He challenges them to see whose God is the real God. They both offer sacrifices, and Baal, the fake God, doesn't hear nor respond to the prophets of Baal, because after all, Baal doesn't exist. Yet upon Elijah offering a sacrifice and reminding the people of their identity as God's chosen people, the true God, Yahweh, responds by consuming the sacrifice and fire from heaven. Finally, after this prophetic and miraculous ministry of Elijah ends with him being taken up into heaven, Elisha, his protege, has an even more miraculous ministry in the northern kingdom of Israel. We ended this flyover of the northern kingdom by noting that this kingdom of Israel was eventually conquered in 722 BC by the Assyrian Empire. The people continued to walk in ways disobedient to God and His law, and God judged the nation for their sins. We then shifted back to the southern kingdom of Judah, where we mentioned three notable kings of Judah. The first king we focused on was Hezekiah. It was during Hezekiah's reign that Assyria attempted to continue their push into the land of Canaan and came all the way to the city of Jerusalem. They had already conquered the northern kingdom, and they wanted to conquer the south as well. Their leader sent heralds to intimidate the people in the city of Jerusalem, and yet Hezekiah prayed to God with the faith that God could deliver the nation as he had many times before. And God did. As the angel of the Lord strikes down 185,000 Assyrians encamped outside of Jerusalem. God, by his power, delivered the people again, just as he had so many times before. And yet, near the end of Hezekiah's days, we saw him proudly parade an envoy from Babylon around Jerusalem, showing the Babylonians the spoils for taking when Jerusalem was finally conquered. And it's here that we hear the prophets begin to warn of the Babylonian conquering of the southern kingdom. After Hezekiah, we see his truly wicked son Manasseh reign as king over the southern kingdom of Judah. Manasseh's evil is compared to the inhabitants of the land that were driven out many years prior. You remember when Joshua was entering it, they were driving out the people. Manasseh was more evil than even the people driven out from before the Israelites in the first place. And again, during his reign, we hear of the soon coming disaster to the southern kingdom. Finally, The last king of Judah that we met was Josiah, who led the final big revival of the nation as he helped the people turn back to obeying God's law. It was for his sake that God apparently delayed the Babylonian conquest of the land. God was pleased with Josiah for honoring him. And yet finally, a few generations later, Babylon conquers Judah in 586 BC when the temple is destroyed. The people were driven out of the land of Canaan just as they had driven out the people before them. God was displeased with the Israelites, but he was not done with his people. The exile is going to be a rough time for them, but it's during this time that we'll get to learn a lot more about the next phase of God's plan of salvation and world history. The scope of the Bible story is about to re-expand in a dramatic fashion. We've been focused on Israel for a long time, and they'll continue to be a major part of the story. But God's plan has always been about the whole world. Next time, we're going to learn about the future, the near future 
and the far future, the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of God. Don't miss the next episode where we'll see an exiled prophet reveal the worldwide plans of God. Thanks for listening to The Bible Brief. Have you donated to the Bible Literacy Foundation? We'd love for you to partner with us so that we can expand our reach and grow. Your support means more people will have access to the life-changing story and message of the Bible. The easy way to donate is to click the link in the show notes to this episode. Alternatively, you can go to our website, BibleLiteracyFoundation.com, and click Donate. Thank you for making this show possible. Copyright Bible Literacy Foundation 2022